You're listening to Beyond Bitcoin. It's the 27th of January. I'm Arthur Falls, and this is, of course, not investment advice. This episode has been sitting in the bank for quite a while due to a scheduling error on my part that left it in limbo while I was off the grid at Kiwi Burn, New Zealand's Burning Man equivalent. Amazing, by the way. Uh, so please excuse the belated release. While I was away, I received an email from Manfred Career, the founder of BitSquare, explaining that after what at my count must have been nine months unpaid development, his team was rattling the last coins in their jar. The reason I take time to bring this up is that the problem BitSquare addresses, decentralized Bitcoin to fiat exchange, is currently unsolved. The best we have is local bitcoins, which, as functional as it is, leaves much to be desired. The arbitration infrastructure of BitSquare means the creation of more non-technical jobs in the crypto economy for people like you and myself, as well as a way for people anywhere to access anonymous currency in a safe and easy manner. Episode 9 featured the project, which is a fantastic example of how the DAC model can improve a simple process of exchange. If you have enjoyed Beyond Bitcoin, if you share the vision of a world where we are free to exchange value without the oversight of some arbitrary authority, donate to BitSquare. I've held virtually all donations to Beyond Bitcoin in a single address. All funds from that address will go to fund the BitSquare project. Chris Mountford is a developer at Atlassian, a software company based in Australia. We had a really great discussion at the Bitcoin South conference regarding systems for recording interactions, reputation, and personal information, which we resume for the content of this episode. Chris's focus on the concrete attributes we should desire in what, for the sake of ease, we will call an identity system, make his analysis of the problem both fresh and elucidating. I know I said that the last episode was the second to last. It looks like there'll be at least two more after this one. So for those eagerly awaiting the end, you're out of luck. I guess, well, my name's Chris Mountford. I'm a, a software developer at uh, Atlassian, which is a, an Australian company. I work in Sydney, in Australia. And uh, I guess I came to Bitcoin and um, I guess became obsessed with Bitcoin. Over a fairly long period of time, I was aware of it probably around 2010 and I kind of kept hearing about it. And I didn't really follow it up because I'd been hearing about these cryptocurrencies for actually about 20 years. Um, I remember DigiCash and, and the various uh, first sort of, um, I think there was another thing called TechnoCash or something, but I can't really find any references to that anymore. In the, in the early internet days of about, I guess it was about 92 or 93 or something like that. And I was really obsessed with the internet then. And, uh, and when I first heard about uh, digital cryptographic based money i thought awesome this is going to be great this is yet another thing that the internet world and computers in general are going to make into a, a you know a sort of a revolutionary uh sort of change as a part as a part of this whole uh revolution in um, communications and information that was happening at the time but it seemed that it never really came to fruition and the the projects were shut down or you know, it just seemed to be maybe um, 
I guess my conclusion at the time, and this is what made me, I think, especially skeptical of Bitcoin when I heard of it, I just thought that the that the cypherpunk ethos was uh, too too extreme. The idea that cryptography is a is a tool for um, social change, or that it is, um, you know, it's better living, better living through cryptography, if you like, was was a little bit unrealistic, and that and that um, yeah, cryptography was really important, and uh, PGP, and then the various other tools that came out around that time, really important, or at least really high in potential for uh, for individual privacy, and has certainly been a lot of that has come through the internet, digital signatures and things. But I'd never really seen a successful digital currency, uh, commerce on the internet, which was something people thought would never take off and who in their right mind would ever put their credit card number into a computer. That uh, that whole problem just seemed to go away. And so when I saw Bitcoin, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, this is another one of those. And maybe, you know, I would hope it would work, but uh, it didn't really hold my breath. And um, then after a while, I think it's about, 2012, I had a closer look and I thought, oh, actually, this is, this is a really nice design and it's actually got some traction. And when I started to see, I think it was uh, the Silk Road and WikiLeaks, that sort of stuff happen, um, I, I started to see how, well, now that they've got some powerful enemies, uh, we'll see. And they stood up to them. And that's, for me, that's, that is the, um, that's the real test of a technology, is if it can survive in that. Uh, highly political and highly, um, I guess, um, sort of, uh, I guess, sort of war battle-like uh, scenario of of um, pissing powerful people off, uh, like Tor ha- um, has and like uh, Torrents have. If it can survive in that scenario, then it stood some sort of test of uh, uh, robustness, and that's really when I started to take notice of it and uh, eventually bought some. And then, um, yeah, now I'm now I'm totally obsessed with it. And how how did that uh, tie in with the work you were doing at Altassian and Atlassian? Pardon me. <laughs> Not at all, really. Originally, um, now since uh, I suppose over the last year, I've been working in identity systems at Atlassian, and um, I mean there, it it ties in in one way. It's software. You know, Atlassian is a software company. Um, our Traditional market is other teams that make software. So we sell software to people who make software so that they can make software. You know, that sort of, uh, that sort of thing. So it's a very um, engineering-centric and uh, I guess an optim- optimistic kind of um, engineering culture. So that's, a, that's the first sort of level of, um, I guess, uh, how it ties in. But then uh, also... My kind of shadow brief, if you like, at Atlassian was security. I, this is an area I've always been interested in. And I've been at the company so long. You know, when I started, it was just a small a small company. There were I think, 20-something people in Sydney and the, uh, and the first uh, US office had been opened. And uh, so I was kind of like the guy who was most interested in security until we finally um, got you know, dedicated specialists for that sort of thing. And so I think um, there's a certain tie-in there. And um, the, the identity thing, I think, ties into it as well because um, I see, and we can talk about this a lot more if you like, but I see 
uh, in Bitcoin and the blockchain technologies, I see a, a real potential solution for identity systems or name systems and uh, including in that various other adjacent areas like um, you know, authorization, uh, authentication, um, that sort of thing. I can see some solutions there. And having worked for the last year on uh, a, a sort of internal um, identity system where it's you know, a single sign-on and, and um, multiple systems that need to agree about who people are and what they're permitted to see and that sort of stuff. I can see how this is a fundamental feature of the whole Bitcoin universe that really is, I guess, is still missing. It's not there. I mean, we can see it most clearly when we have to use uh, Bitcoin addresses uh, and the equivalent in all of the other different blockchain technologies instead of using names that we're more familiar with. So uh, that's a that's a, a tie-in as well. Um, there's one more if you're interested. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, Atlassian's sort of first product that they started with and the one that I've worked on most is a, um, a bug tracker, if you like, or a sort of a task tracker or project management tool called Jira. And uh, it... It's really just a, a big database to track and uh, and manage all of the things that you need to do, and, and it has a quite a, a big open source community um, who who are, use it. So you know Apache and various other um, you know high profile uh, open source projects use it, and we give it away for free to those sorts of projects. And so I thought that uh, the whole bug bounty idea was a pretty interesting use of Bitcoin. You could, if you were an, a user of, an op- of open source software, uh, which most people really are, you could say, look, I really want this bug fixed or I want this new feature and I'm prepared to pay. Uh, and this idea is in pretty much all of the, uh, all of the cryptocurrency projects, which are you know, almost universally open source projects themselves. And the idea of posting money on a, a work item and offering that money to whoever will do that work, that's, uh, that's pretty much, um, that's a sort of um, key, key feature of how we could uh, get this, uh, how people who are not developers themselves can drive the progress of the technology, how people who are um, developers can monetize their efforts, which in open source projects hasn't really happened, I suppose, enough. And uh, so I wrote a plugin for Jira. It's got an extension system, and this is uh, widely used by people. And that was just to add Bitcoin capability to to tasks and work items. And so you can add to uh, a bounty. You can sort the tasks by bounty or how many Bitcoins people have posted on them. And then the administrator of that uh, system can say how that workflow will work. They don't necessarily say that that the user will definitely, the, the developer will definitely get 100% of those that, that bounty, although that's the most obvious case. They could say, oh, yeah, and, um, you know, 1% goes to the, to the server or 5% or 10% goes to charity or whatever or to the, you know, EFF or something. So it, it wasn't that I was saying, yeah, this is just a bug bounty system, but because Jira has this plugin system, I made it such that you could you could transfer balances as a as a workflow step, and in Jira you can design that to be 
whatever kind of workflow you want. So that's a bit of a complicated uh, explanation of it. But yeah, a bug bounty system, if you're familiar with that, that's pretty much the, the sort of starting point. But it can work a bit like Kickstarter if you want as well. Just before we were talking about identity systems, and it seems like like Jira mm. is like there's a there's a definite need for a strong identity system in a piece of software like Jira where you're actually examining relationships and logging uh, and and logging events. Well, um, there there could certainly be if you're talking about open source systems like. Uh, like Bitcoin and um, these high, I guess you'd call them high trust kind of um, s- software. Uh, we can get into that, but the but the the direct relationship between I- the identity systems that I'm working on at Atlassian and Jira is quite pedestrian. It's really just that this is one application amidst uh, um, a growing array of uh, groupware, or that's to use an old term, um, collaboration software for teams. And when um, Atlassian buys a new company and those um, sort of features and those options for different, I mean, we've got chat applications and a wiki, various things like that. When we want them to all work uh, and interoperate seamlessly, we obviously need to have people's identity work across all of those systems. So that's the basic kind of need for an identity, identity system there. And you can see the exact same thing exists in Apple, in Google, in Facebook, you know they have a they have a large number of people working on all of these different parts, and those parts combine. And you don't need to, you shouldn't need to, separately log into all of the different things that Google runs. You should be able to log in once and then use all of them as that same individual. So Google has identity systems, Facebook and Twitter, and twi- in some ways these services, these public services, have become identity systems. You can log in with your Facebook, you know, to other sites, to third party sites. Same with Google, same with Twitter. And that's where we're really starting to get into an interesting world because, yeah, we need to collaborate and these, soft, these various applications need to interoperate. And so they need to be able to get away from that horrible, balkanized world where you have to create an account on every separate, separate app that you use. And then you go, yeah, this is my name, Chris Mountford. And, you know, think of a new password and remember them all. Or, you know, you should be using a password manager for that these days. But, you know, you need to separately manage your accounts on all of these different systems. Well, what we obviously need is unified identity systems that that reduce the need for us to, to, to separately create all those. And we really can't have a world where everyone's identity is run by a couple of big companies. I think that's... Uh, that's quite a dangerous possibility, you know, like whether it's Google or Facebook or anyone else. We have to have the internet of identity. And so that's what really brings us to the, uh, to the next question, which is what does that internet of identity look like? Yeah, I've been thinking about this, um, and, and you and I were talking about this earlier, actually. I think um, actually it would be a good uh, moment to, to reflect on that podcast, that uh, that episode of uh, Let's Talk Bitcoin, that Andreas and Chris uh, Andreas Antonopoulos and Chris Ellis did about I think it was called the philosophy of identity. Episode one hundred and sixty. Right, awesome. Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, that one I really loved. Um, although there was a couple of moments in there, where I was standing on my chair and saying, "Hey, that I don't, I disagree." You know, <laughs> uh, 
and I think it was the moment when they were talking about identity systems and um, I think it was Andreas was saying something along the lines of, but uh, you have to watch out for or you have to, we have to um, be vigilant against the potential uh, reduction of identity into a, into a sort of a simple star system where people vouch for each other in this way and say, oh, thumbs up for, for Arthur and you know, thumbs down for Chris and your rank gets, you know, uh, higher than mine or whatever. And, and that's the sort of, that's the sum total of a human's value in that they've got some numeric quantity that goes with their name and, and that's the end of it. And I think that that certainly is a horrible thought. You know, I think that if we have that, as you can see, there are those sorts of reputation systems, I would call them, in various sites. You know, you've got, I think the Q&A sites are particularly, um, you know, prone to have this. But I, but I think the way that an identity, identity system should work, and hopefully we're not using a term here, identity system, uh, which is loaded with too, mu- too much baggage, I think, I suspect it might be. With a term like identity system, it's so broad that I think there's, <clears throat> I, th- mm. I think there's an implication that, uh, that what we're talking about is not very, is not specific. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you were, um, actually we were, we were chatting earlier and, um, a couple of the points you made made me recognize that actually identity is probably really not the right word to use here because it is too uh, ambiguous. And when we're talking, well, when I'm talking about identity systems, I think um, most of the time I'm really focusing on name registration and um, having some form of, uh, well, in Bitcoin it would be called an address, but but the concept is like a public key. So the idea is it's a unique identifier, um, but it doesn't have to be a single unique identifier. You could have multiple of these. And And just like you have... Uh, an alias on the let's on the um, Bitcoin Talk forums and the various other forums you might be on, and that's your, that's a unique username or a numeric username. Uh, just as you have that, you would have potentially in this this, this uh, utopian identity system, you would have um, identifiers that are unique to you globally, so not just on that forum. And then that's not enough because you can already have your own. Key pairs, people, developers use this all the time. You know, you use your keys. Um, actually, this is a good point. You, you might use your keys to uh, authenticate yourself with, um, you know, these, uh, these sites like GitHub. GitHub's sort of a code repository where developers can collaborate on their code. That's, um, that's a, uh, you know, sort of a popular place for people to collaborate on open source. And I should, pro- I should probably mention this is, uh, you know, you can cut this out. It's probably classified as an ad. Uh, but my company also <laughs> has one called Bitbucket, uh, which is, um, you know, it competes with, with GitHub, uh, virtually the same sort of a uh, category of, of product. So the, so the concept is that you have a unique identifier and you can use that unique identifier to identify yourself to the things you currently use and the things that you will use next. And then those, those, just like Facebook, using your Facebook to log in or using Google to log in. However, however there's not a single uh, company behind this, this identity. It's a blockchain. And depending on how broad you want to go, there, there could be a lot of other stuff. 
that connects with that identity. And, and that can include reputation systems, which might be, yes, I, I vouch for Arthur. He's a, he's a great tree climber or he's a, <laughs> he's a, he's a mean motocross rider, something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We've got these rudimentary identity systems already, uh, for use in, in what you were talking about, Bitbucket and, uh, and GitHub. Oh, right. So about that, yes. The reason I mentioned them, I only just thought of it at that time. Uh, those are two uh, services, and there are probably plenty of others, but developer services are a little bit of, they can be a little window into the future of what everyone else will be using, muggles, if you like, will be using uh, um, in, in the future when things become easier to use and when it's all proven. And that is that you use the standard style um, key pairs. So, so just just as the um, what's called uh, public key infrastructure or PKI, the public key and private key pair, that's the basis of the digital signature um, uh, system behind Bitcoin and pretty much all of the altcoins. This uh, system is in has been in use for um, authorization, which means access control, um, to uh, various services on the internet for a long time. So if you are contributing to a software project, then your ability to, to um, send uh, code, so new work that you've done or changes to the existing code, um, you don't necessarily have to type your password every time you want to send that code in. And if you've ever seen any hacker movies, you know that we use those uh, horrendously complex looking green screen type setups with this with the text all over it you know the terminal type stuff and so if you're sitting at the command line <laughs> that's all all just smoke and mirrors mystique stuff of course no, no. <laughs> so so you're using the command line and you can type you know uh, git blah 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 you're using the, the the tools of the developer you can send your code changes or push them as it's called in uh, in git terminology you push them to a server and that um, that is an authenticated uh, data submission and you don't type your password typically uh, often uh, you're, uh, you're, and that's because it's done using private and public key pairs so when I make a connection that connection is authenticated using uh, public key infrastructure the cryptography of those keys um, and if someone else has access to my computer, and if I don't have passphrases on my keys, this is the password uh, aspect creeping back in. If I don't have that, then someone can impersonate me. So given this landscape, we've established that there's a need for a way to secure information, attach it to an identity, and record that identities. And again, I know we're using you know, identity is far too broad a term. Yeah, you can use the word identifier. I was just thinking that before. It's an it's a unique number or address or a key, public key. Okay, so let's we need a way or a name or a name. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we need a way of attaching information and a history of a record of a history of interactions to an identifier that an individual can then associate with themselves in order to interact in a secure but at the same time open way with a history of uh with a history of interactions and and a reputation yeah usually you do uh that's that's um this is where i think we need to be careful to 
not assume that I, that a reputation system and uh, is is always connected with an identity or an identifier system having identifiers. So let's imagine the case where I, I'm create I've created a new account on a service. So everyone knows what email's like. You've got Gmail or whatever, but you you with Gmail you you send your password across the wire to Google, and then Google take the password and you know, w- without having stored your password, they verify that that password is the right one. You know, there's a whole set of problems that go with that way of, of interacting. However, what you have with that with them is an account that is uh, independent of an, any external identity. Uh, so you've said that your name is Arthur Falls and you Arthur S Falls, and you've <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you've because there could be someone else. <laughs> uh, so and you've so you've said that's your name, and then you now you're coming back and you're presenting those same credentials, and they're verifying those credentials are you. Now they still provide you email service, even if you are. Uh, terrible tree climber or motorbike rider you know your reputation in those specific areas or in any area isn't relevant to whether or not they know that you are the same person who or that you're presenting credentials that that were presented when you first signed up for the account so what they have is um and this is where i put say this is what your identity is as opposed to your reputation what what they have is uh some defensible uh expectation that you're the same person as as the person who signed up for the account right now there's obviously ways that that could fail you could be you know hacked or stuff like that but that's that's independent of what your reputation is and what your reputation is will be attached to an identity so your email address on on gmail say uh, you start sending emails around and then people sort of Maybe they don't like what you have to say, or they do. Maybe they think you're a fantastic podcaster, and uh, and, and then they want to recommend you. They say, "Look, you got to really listen to this Arthur Falls guy. He's awesome. His Beyond Bitcoin podcast is the best." Now that's where that's where reputation comes in. So I might use your name because there's no other Bitcoin Arthur Falls in my address book. You're the Arthur Falls. I don't need anything much more than your name. You know, I, I need mechanisms to reach you, like your Skype address and your email and whatever. But as long as I've got your name and if somebody says, hey, you know that guy, and they say Arthur Falls and they say Bitcoin, I'll be like, yeah, I know that guy. He's a cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's so there's identity, there's the recognition and the disambiguation, if you like, the way to um, distinguish one person or one persona uh, from another. So... Uh, I know who you are by what you've done because those things help uniquely identify you. I've got actually I've got a couple of Twitter accounts. This is another good example. I've got my my first Twitter account was uh me the professional software developer talking about mostly software stuff but you know like Twitter it was a bit of everything. But when I started getting really obsessed with Bitcoin I thought ah oh, I better let all these software people who are not into Bitcoin off the hook here and and not bombard them with Bitcoin stuff. And I created a separate Twitter account and, you know, subsequent other the you know domain name and I created a blog and various other stuff. And that identity is called Block Zombie. So if anyone's listening to this and they're interested in following me on Twitter, follow me as Block Zombie because that's my Twitter identity. 
And and I mentioned this not to get more followers on Twitter, although that, that's cool because you know then your reputation grows. But uh, but because um, this is a way to illustrate what identity and reputation really are. Reputation, I think, you know, it it can be mixed up with a simple star system, but uh, it's also, I guess, I'd like to say domain specific. It's about a subject matter. It's normally when someone uh, vouches for someone else, they, they, they should, I think they should qualify what they're saying and to say, is this person, you know, a nice guy? That doesn't mean that you, that you're saying that they're a good doctor or something. They might be a doctor, but you, maybe you're not qualified to say how good a doctor they are. Or maybe you're actually a, a medical practitioner and you're, you're absolutely qualified to say how good a doctor they are, but you're not assessing whether or not they're a nice guy. You know, so reputation, I think, should be all, always claims, qualified claims uh, about, about another identity. You know, so people might say, yeah, block zombie, uh, great stuff about the software or technical aspects of blockchain technology, but not much of a, you know, well-informed Austrian economist, <laughs> which is probably fair. <laughs> Domain specificity is, uh, yeah. is key there, isn't it? I think so. Well, it's a qualifier. It's like saying rather than uh, just a star system, which is a linear, really clumsy. I mean, stars is great for actually. It's not really. To be honest, I don't think it's much good for anything other than you know hotels. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. it's just too simpl- simplistic. Uh, my uh, we were talking before. My example is music, some or movies or something like that. People make recommendations to each other. You know, has anyone ever come to you and said, "Oh, Arthur, you'll love this. Check this out. It's um, this music or this this movie or this book." All the time, yeah. yeah and then and then you're stuck, like, yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> I'm sure it's good. Yeah. <laughs> so if it's someone who knows you, well, maybe what they've done is they've said, "Well, Arthur likes this sort of thing. He just loves science fiction or whatever." Uh, at least that's qualified to some subset of all potential books or all potential movies. Because, if, because you know, if someone says, this is really great and they don't know me at all, well, what does that mean? Great, let's say, great music. People will recommend music. Oh, you'll love this. Uh, and um, I'm not sure what that means because if they don't know me at all, then what they most likely mean is I really love this. They like it. And that's not even useful if I don't know them, <laughs> you know. So it needs to be qualified. It's this star system is, it's something, but it's not much. So what you want to say in, a, in, in any identity system, the re- relationships between identities, which is what we're really talking about here, bring it back to identity and blockchain type technology, the sorts of things that can be implemented in software. You want to be able to have an identity system where and actually, it, for anyone who, for any software developers who know about JWT, it's a uh, JSON um, web tokens. This is sort of a a system for or standard for for making um, uh, connections between identities. So an identity can be a uh, a thing that that is an identifier. So let's just say identifier. So an identifier, just for our conversation, it can just be our names, right? So Chris Mountford, Arthur S. Falls, uh, we know who we're talking about. That's enough identity for, for anything, as long as you can be unambiguous. And then we're making, in JWT, what happens is you make specific claims. So 
this is what I've been saying, you know, about the medical um, you know, credentials or the motorcycle riding capability or whatever. There is a, uh, there are, there's a narrow, typically a very narrow claim made. I'm saying you're a great tree climber. Uh, so, so my ability to uh, quantify tree climbing ability is then conferred onto you. And so anyone who knows my ability to determine good tree climbing, it might be mediocre or it might be good. Uh, that uh, ability of mine, my reputation in, in determining tree climbing ability, I mentioned this because I, I think I heard once that you're an arborist <clears throat> or you, have, you literally swing from trees. <laughs> yes, Did yeah. I hear that right? Yeah, I, I am an arborist, although I'm about to resign. Um, yeah. yeah. Go into horticulture. All right. See, totally different thing, right? <laughs> yeah, actually, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, no, see, I don't doubt that. It's just that, um, you know, my, my knowledge in that area is nowhere near, I'm guessing, nowhere near as, as broad as yours. So just my clumsy uh, sort of approach to that would be, mm, that sounds like it's in the same quadrant of, of, of life, the universe and everything. Oh, c- you know, certainly similar and- quadrant. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so that, so this isn't just this very conversation is another example of uh, of just qualifying claims, making a claim about from Chris Mountford to Arthur Falls about a thing where the reputation I have amongst whoever cares um, is uh, is conferred, or there's a transaction, if you like, like a like a value transaction in in Bitcoin. There's a transaction between me and you uh, on a topic. And JWT is a, just a sort of a format or a, um, a mechanism for uh, uh, implementation for actually writing in software claims about um, entities from other entities. And I think that this is a useful part of the future identity system that I hope we can, as a community, uh, develop together. And I've, I've been doing a little bit of research about this, but... Uh, I'm not really in a position to sort of say exactly which which of the potential competing systems is going to succeed or be the best, uh, but I, but I'm fairly well, be increasingly clear about what we really want from this. Do we need a way to quantify a person's competence or a person's ability to confer uh, reputation? Is there a way to do it, and do we need? Hmm. Do we need to do that? Do we need to find a way to granularize the transaction of reputation that you describe? Uh, yes and no. I think uh, we don't need to unless we need to. In some ways, that's w- what it comes down to. Uh, if if we're talking about um, specific capabilities, there there might be a numeric scale, like there is with most schooling, you know, and most certification. They uh, quantify abilities. And that's presumably that's useful to do. I'm not saying that quantifying claims, reputation or, or capability claims are um, useless. I'm just saying that there's no need for us to fear that all identity systems inexorably lead to a dumb uh, numeric quantified uh, reputation system. Because if you look at the, the um, identity and reputation systems that we have in modern societies, they don't simply come down to numeric quantities. And so no digital version or, or ideal digital version 
would uh, hopefully suffer from that. Now, certainly it's a failure case. <laughs> it's something that could happen and it's just like any other dystopia. Uh, I agree, it's not what we want. But uh, and, and actually I'm very critical of some of the overly quantitative processes that are used for certification and, uh, and in education, in, in school education. Uh, I think that some of those are, um, you know, suboptimal. We, we really, what we want to do is maximize people's capabilities and round them out to some set that they are going to need in their life, if, that, if that's the goal, education is the goal, or to, um, to adopt a multidimensional or a sort of multivariate view of what capability is. So um, you might be a great, Look, we keep coming back to some of these same examples. You might be a great doctor. Uh, look, this is a problem. Hey, he's a great example of a, of a problem that we've seen in education, uh, certainly in a lot of the Western countries. What's happened in medicine is medicine is a high um, status profession. Doctors, you know, especially surgeons and specialists, and you know, it's not brain surgery because you know, like brain surgery is right up there with 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 rocket science as being the pinnacle capability. And that's a, well, that's a reputation. It's, I'm not saying it's undeserved. I'm just saying it is that way. And so, in most of my experiences in Australia, and I'm assuming that it kind of works the same in in New Zealand and the US, and in most of the places where um, many of your your listeners are from. And so, therefore, if you want to become a doctor, then you have to compete at in school against a lot of other people who are, you know, presumably all competing against each other. Maybe not, maybe not for being a doctor, but for being something. And school often comes down to a single numerical quantity, you know, and that will determine your entrance to university or your right to enter university or the offers that you will be given to attend or to be given scholarships and various other things. And they do, I think they do certainly attempt to incorporate not just your mark. They interview candidates and look for uh, qualities that, um, you know, aren't being measured by the school exam system, uh, which of course is merely just merely the ability to score high on an exam. That's what's being measured, and then uh, the result seems to be potentially a problem of the the people who are going into medicine in Australia. A lot of the people who are going into medicine, this is a sense that people have: people who have scored high on mathematics and science and stuff, which you know. Those things are, I, I think that's great in some areas. I think we need to have more maths and science and engineering, you know, sort of uh, education. But to, but to quantify the um, or to determine who should be a doctor by that alone isn't possibly an ideal, you know, because a lot of what being an actual doctor is about is dealing with people. And there are people skills that are not being quantified or not being weighted in the, uh, the, the sort of quantification system that is in schools, they're not being weighted to, uh, to select ideally for being a doctor. And you could say the exact same thing about, the, about being a lawyer as well, which is another one of those professions that has a high, uh, what's it called in the US, a grade point average or whatever. So your question was, shouldn't, should we not have or is there a role for um, quantification of people's uh, reputation? And I'd say, yeah, there is a role for that. It's sometimes uh, simplification that's convenient and you don't lose too much. If you're talking about a movie or a hotel or something, 
and I'm campaigning to be elected as a marketing delegate for BitShares. I'll be focusing on bringing BitUSD to the Argentine market where it is needed most, giving people access to a stable currency through a safe and bank-free solution. I'll be developing a custom BitUSD portal for Spanish speakers and launching an advertising campaign to promote the portal. To view the rest of my campaign details, visit bitsharestalk.org and look in the delegate sub-forum. My delegate is called argentina-marketing.mat608. Please vote for me if you support my campaign. Thank you. I think let's talk about some practical examples. I think one of the things in um, Bitcoin, uh, which is right at the forefront of uh, concern for a lot of people, is is regulation. And to me, it seems to split into two main camps: regulation for consumer protection, which I, and I don't know anyone who's against this in principle. Uh, the idea that if somebody else is um, minding your money, then they need to be held account for that. They perhaps need to follow some procedures and maybe take some steps uh, and maybe um, you know, have insurance and capital backing and whatever else. They need to do stuff in order to reduce the risk of losing money that belongs to other people and they also need to have a way, uh, mechanisms to respond if that uh, is necessary. So those things are defined in regulation. Let's just put them aside. But the rest of regulation seems to be focused basically on identity. It's KYC, know your customer. And you can see in the language here who, who they're talking to. Your, the Y in KYC, your customer, that's talking from regulators to financial institutions. So uh, what they're saying is that it's the financial institution's responsibility to, to know the identity of the, of the customer, whoever is making transactions. And the customer is presumably um, the one who's basically footing the bill here. So the, the customer is paying for a service and the regulator is conferring a, a responsibility on the uh, service provider, the financial uh, company, the financial institution, to do some stuff uh, because it's really important that they, that they do that. And obviously uh, everyone knows the reason why or the, um, the, the published um, purpose of this is for uh, stopping various criminal uh, or deterring or uh, enabling uh, f- crime fighting for various criminal activities, including terrorism. We've seen quite an increase in the amount of uh, or the, the extent of the regulation, especially coming from the US in the wake of 9-11. So the, the threat of um, criminal activity, terrorism, is, is uh, creating a scenario where it's really important that a service provider knows who is receiving the service, 
Why is that? Well, the purpose is that they don't want money to go to terrorists, so therefore they need to track everything. They need to know exactly who's um, transmitting money uh, and then, of course, the flip side is who they're, who's receiving the money. And the, the reason is because um, in the case that they then discover that there's some crime being committed or they form a suspicion that there is, then they want to be able to go and find that person who was doing that. And they can do this at the point where the funding occurs for the terrorism instead of after the act has occurred. So it's a sort of preemptive and it's also for following up. So this is the whole purpose of it and the goal behind it. But let's look at what really happens. Then what happens is that you need to provide a huge amount of, of identifying data to a financial institution, every single one that falls into this regulation, and that is exactly the information that's required to impersonate you. By definition, it has to be sufficient to identify you, and uh, since uh, identifying you is the only mechanism that's been used, to, to ensure against um, your having some involvement in a crime at a later time or, or even previously, then uh, they need to ensure that they have enough detail to uniquely identify you, and that's metadata including your mother's maiden name and your address and then you need photo ID and everything. like You need a lot of stuff. And that list is only going, if we continue down that road, that list is only going to increase. Because once everyone's mother's maiden name, cat's name, you know, password, all of this stuff, once this stuff leaks out and is stolen, as it frequently is, uh, or is um, taken by the bank's employees or is, um, you know, seized by dozens of government departments and shared around and then leaked by, by into WikiLeaks or whatever, once this information gets out, and it really can't be contained. I mean, look at Sony. Then, yeah, I mean, God, I mean, they're getting hammered. Third time. <laughs> yeah, they're looking like a sieve. So the um, – and, and we need to uh, interact. This is a sort of feature of a modern networked uh, economy. We need to interact with more and more entities, the ownership patterns and, uh, you know, the containment and relationships between all of the corporations who own this or that uh, database. That's becoming more complex and more dynamic. So the opportunities for the loss of that information and its spread increases and the inevitable consequence is that we need to not only provide our mother's maiden name but our mother's maiden name and a whole, you know, more set of stuff that, that hasn't been leaked. So why mother's maiden name? Well, because that's not easily accessible. Well, yeah, now it is. Thanks a lot. So now that's not enough. So, so we're going to stop this madness. What we actually want is the opposite and I think Bitcoin has a fantastic ability to uh, use a, use a you know like a technique of just reversing um, what your expectation might be, and I think this decentralized security model, decentralized uh, security in uh, the decentralized network uh, transactions, the trustless peer to peer transactions, is a good example of this. You need to um, you need the opposite of this. You need to reduce the amount of information you share in order to increase capability to. Re- to, to reduce the opportunity for fin- terrorism financing and these other goals. Um, I'm actually quite sceptical of, uh, of KYC and um, AML because I think that um, it's really a form of uh, you know, total surveillance. Uh, it's, it's the equivalent of cameras in your, in your home. It's just cameras in your bank account. 
Uh, and the practicality of that is a whole nother matter. I think it's basically not practical or possible to have a system like that. But it doesn't even matter whether it's impossible because it's really not a good idea. What we should have instead uh, is a situation of minimal disclosure. So what has to happen uh, in the case of a, of a bank account where someone might, I mean, you know, okay, we want to have a world without bank accounts, but let's say there's financial services providers and they want to solve this problem of um, people might um, be involved in terrorism and they need to then find that person. Well, who needs to find the person if it turns out that they are involved in a terrorist uh, plot? Well, ultimately the person, the you know, presumably a police officer who needs to go and knock on a door or bust down a door or whatever, that's the, that's the only person who needs to know the address of the person. Uh, you know, nobody... I guess the only reason to know their name is is to acquire from them confirmation that they are that person. So you could you could you could actually say, well, what we need is a um, a means to discover someone's. This is the first step: a means to discover someone's address under certain situations. Right? No, you don't need the bank employees and the central. You know the. Uh, uh, FinCEN and in Australia it's Austrac and New Zealand. I I don't know, but uh, you know I've, there are these uh, different uh, pl- different government bodies who are supposed to receive the reports of uh, suspicious activity and um, know who's transferring all this money. Those people don't need those those people in those offices don't need to know the address. They don't need to turn up to that address. They don't need to know that. Okay, what they need to be able to do is make a decision about patterns of uh, transactions and they might need to know um, whether the, whether a party to a transaction is involved in this ongoing investigation where they have had people knock on doors and if the person who that uh, suspicious person is transacting with uh, is involved then they might need to go knock on their door so at that point they could say authorize that the uh, that those are the parties who are go- who are deemed to be suspicious their work's done they've done their analysis they've said this is something we're following up on uh, and then someone else will, might need to ultimately someone will need to go and find the address but none of the people in between need to know the address right so it's sort of like a blinding the idea is that uh, say my address is I disclose my address for purposes of needing to know my address which I submit to in a society some people would say that these situations should never occur they might be libertarians and i'm not going to argue about that i'm just saying that if you if you do believe that that we should be able to find people's address to follow up in extreme cases of need like a terrorist plot then then you should be okay with the idea of nobody needing to know that information except the person who actually needs to go to that address when they need to so they can they they can get permission from judges or do whatever process they do and only at the last possible moment they need to know the, know the actual address they need to know that they can discover it. On this is the flip side of the authorization and the uh, identity. They need to be able to pr- prove that they are um, entitled to discover that address, that it is a part of an investigation, that it has been determined without prejudice, without knowing the person's name or ethnicity or anything else, that 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 this is a suspicious transaction. Using only the information that they publicly declare is necessary to determine that. They they opt into the metadata. They say, I need to know. Uh, the history of transactions with other entities, um, and the, when we say entities, these are you know identifiers that don't 
<laughs> they don't really identify the, the individual's name. That doesn't include their, their mother's maiden name or their cat's name or their ethnicity or whatever. It doesn't include their address unless those things are agreed to be critical to determining whether or not there is a problem here, whether this is a terrorist plot. So whatever they need to determine whether it's a terrorist plot, that's all they get to know. The bank employees who need to determine that the figures add up, they don't need to know anything, just the figures. You with me? How do all of these things come together? How do you implement a, uh, a system like this? And how do you verify that information as it's entered into, the, uh, into, a, um, into a database? Yeah, well, those are two very different things. Uh, most verification um, is, is solved using the system itself. So, what? Uh, but how do you how do you uh, and how do you implement this? Well, again, I think it's a series of claims. So, when I um, when I sign up for a bank account, what I'd be saying is, all right, um, I'm providing my an identifier, which I can be, uh, which is unique to me. It may not be my only identifier. It could be I could have a nickname. I could have a dozen accounts on all these forums or different names. But those are not related to this. This is my bank account identifier unique to me, like a, just like a number. And then I attach to that signed claims by authorized parties. So um, here's an example of a signed claim. So my address, I, say, I state what my address is. And in the, exi- in the existing system of signing up for a bank account, I think what you need to do is it's been a long, it's been a while since I actually signed bank account stuff, but I think you have to provide you know like a power bill or something with the same address on it, so it sort of confirms that you have that address. So you could have someone sign a, um, a proof of address uh, claim. This might be a JP or a uh, some some person whose role it is an independent third party whose role it is to make claims about addresses and other similar things by, by citing the exact same evidence that is currently used today and deemed to be good by looking at um, correspondence or other signed claims, which because of this whole system would exist, by saying, all right, so I, this um, you know, upstanding member of the community whose role it is to do this full time, say that, yes, Arthur Falls, this person who, or this person holding this key, um, ha- bears proof that they live at this address because of um, I have cited these various proofs which are received mail at that address, say. Uh, and um, and you, can, you can have different service providers providing any of these things and none of them gets the, inc- the complete picture. But I don't want to uh, sort of uh, make this too much like a serpent eating its tail where, yeah, the system does it all. Because you can you can bootstrap this system using existing processes. So you could you could have people who um, you know you could have a bank account. You can have an email address. You can have uh, you know uh, addressed mail that you present using the current system, and, and then have someone sign a claim which says that I've seen that this person's already proved to me that they have these things at this time. And who am I to say this? Well, here's my set of credentials. Here's my claim to the. Uh, right to say so. Here's, um, you don't need to know my name, but I have proof that I'm a, you know, JP. But you don't necessarily need to know the mother's maiden name of the JP either. You with me? So this is it, it's a little self-reflexive. So it's difficult to see, and it's certainly a massive undertaking for this entire system to be built out. But in some ways, it's just like the internet. We need this system. We're going to have this system. It's the only one that makes sense to me. 
I guess the only concession I'd, I'd be willing to make is that we will we will approximate this uh, to a greater or lesser degree, and this will be, you know, maybe it's a good enough version of this. But the idea is that we already have, it's a web of trust. So if you're familiar with a web of trust, it is where it's a network of uh, parties that have trust relationships making claims like motorcycling capabilities. You know, you can do a, you know, backflip or whatever because I've seen it. And if that turns out not to be true, well, that will reflect on me. So they're sort of bi-directional. That diminishes the the weight that say a that your your claim yeah. to my ability has, or to someone else's ability in the same field might have. Exactly. They might say, "Oh, you say that about all the guys, Chris." <laughs> you know. So, uh, but the way that it works, you were asking about implementations. Uh, one example in JWT, which is already deployed uh, across the internet, is that you use uh, digital signatures. So these are ways to ensure that um, that a claim can't be uh, can't be counterfeited. So someone who makes a claim um, that their claim as a JP can't be reproduced as someone who's not a JP because they have got the JP badge and they've signed using the JP credential. They've combined that with their um, their assertion that this person does receive mail at this address. You know, according to some you know, you can you can have a point system. You can have a a, a uh, you know if, <laughs> we come back to stars, but you know, you, you know the the idea of you know you can have a one star address check and a five star address check. You know, you can have I've gone there, I've looked around, I I opened their drawers and there was evidence that they really do. You know, like <laughs> that they weren't expecting me, and I turned up and you know I'm pretty sure that that really is that person. And I've checked their birth certificates and I've looked at their kids and I asked their kids what the you know who their daddy was and stuff. You can just go as far as you ever want to, and these are exactly the 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 ex, these are the extents that we do go to when we need to. You know the courts, the police investigations. They already use all of these same techniques. What we need to do is just for every one of those interactions, which are the edges on that network, all of the interactions between the identities between this police officer. You know this. Uh, badge carrying, you know, that's a badge. They have a badge. They've got a piece of pressed metal or whatever it might be. They have a, a, a number. They've got a name in a database. There's what you can follow up on all this stuff. Those things all need to be turned digital. That's really all I'm talking about. Uh, and, and it's definitely going to happen. Everything else is digital. And now that we've got digital money, I can see no reason why we can't have this. Hey, that's awesome that we've got that down because this whole, this identity thing is, I haven't found anyone to talk about it. Yeah. Well, you've, you, I know you've got some uh, knowledge and insights about this that I would love to hear about. My, my feeling is that we always arrive back at identity whenever you start to build these systems, and I've seen it in uh, BitShares in particular. You keep coming back to, and then somehow we all know who we're dealing with here, and we, we've got address books or whatever. And address books, yeah, that's a good start. Everyone's got an address book with emails and maybe even Bitcoin addresses in it. But, uh, you know, and Twitter and they tweet you and say, hey, what's your Bitcoin address or whatever? You know, you, you need to have a way to, uh, to, to know who you're dealing with. So I can see us always arriving back at the problem of identity. And I had thought that maybe this was harder to monetize than, than currency. But you were saying that actually it seems that, it, that that's not true, that actually it can be. Because I was thinking of Namecoin and it's sort of had some, you know, sort of difficulties well, the uh, the case I'm thinking of was um, was Nikolai Mashigian's uh, 
it started off as what was it, bitches DNS, and then it was dot P2P, then it was key ID, and yeah. what he had was an he had an auction system. Right. So this is the uh, bitches style DAC, and what blockchain does that uh, information exist in? And you know, if I wanted just theoretically, if I wanted to take someone's name what would i need to be able to do and how uh, how can we ensure that that's not possible or practical well you need to actually outbid them and in initially no, i mean or- how do i impersonate them you know what is the what's the attack like what's the what's the equivalent of the bitcoin 51 percent attack or or you know what are the doomsday scenarios i guess i'm not 100 percent convinced that these many of these ideas, these doomsday scenarios exist beyond thought experiments. Certainly, if a fifty-one percent attack is not, yeah, I agree with that. I just love for that to be the conclusion, rather than. Well, he, here's an example for Namecoin. It seems like, uh, especially due to the sort of um, uh, partial merge mining problem in Namecoin, and you might say the lack of development uh, that we've seen in the project. Uh, that Namecoin security is not really potentially not up to the task. It may, I, I, I'm not saying that it is, but this is the sort of sense I get that the, the, the vibe of the people who are looking at it and, and, and my own looking at it is that it may not be the system for this. So therefore, what was it? it was, it's not that the technology or the idea is a problem, it's that the actual uh, network power and the security in the network is insufficient to, to make uh, strong guarantees of the kind we want. So let's ask the same set of questions about that BitShares blockchain that it's in. Well, say Bit, presumably it'll be built on the BitShares uh, t- using the BitShares toolkit, and um, and all current BitShares delegates will have the necessary tools to actually run a delegate on the key ID network, whatever it is right now. I should I should know. No, that's that, okay. Uh, yeah. So th- so. Do they so coming back to the uh, monetization and the incentives? Do the um, uh, delegates who make a profit doing this? Uh, do they have the same incentive to secure that aspect, the um, key ID or the name registration aspect, as they do the um, you know sh- are any other share on that blockchain because of the agreement about the BitShares, uh, you know, the sort of proto shares and the the whole bitches chestnut is really uh, is really difficult to um, difficult to crack, really. Yeah, <laughs> but but certainly there's the potential for them to basically implement a dilution, you know, an annual uh, kind of an, a, a, a per block seniorage as we used to in Bitcoin, you know, that encourages them to produce valid blocks, and because they have the the tools necessary to oust any delegate that produces mm-hmm. a uh, an invalid block, you know. Obviously, there's the incentive to um, to for the delegates to behave themselves, and that's how uh, that's how the bitch that's how the bitshares exchange is uh, is secured. And presumably, it would be very simple to bootstrap the uh, the key ID chain right on top of that one. Cool. So that means that the whole of bitshares would have to suffer something equally catastrophic in order for this name system to to be broken. Is that your assessment absolutely absolutely that would be my uh that would be uh, my understanding of it but then also you're not necessarily tying one to the other so one could suffer a major catastrophe and the other may be fine if it doesn't affect say 
the delegate infrastructure or uh, oh yeah yeah okay fair enough yeah can there can there can be bugs specific to that part of it mm. exactly and the uh, and also presumably the incentives to attack are slightly different in both uh, in both scenarios again uh, yeah running- well see here's here's the trick right uh, sorry I interrupted you there but uh, but no, we no, don't no. actually know what the you know the with Bitcoin often the um, the incentive to attack is is widely understood by everyone at once, and that is basically, you know, the, the theoretical maximum loss is the market cap of Bitcoin, right? And maybe you'd add some mining equipment on top of that, uh, but but it's it's instrumented on top of the total market cap of the of the currency, as it is in relation to another currency, so the US dollars, for example. So, so let's say it's five billion dollars for Bitcoin. But what's the what is the the potential downside of a loss of control of a name? If it's the U.S. government's name on this blockchain, and this is the sort of scale I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about just you know Freddie and Johnny on the forum trading illegal drugs or whatever. I'm talking about the whole uh, the Internet of Identity. You know the, the the whole planet's worth of identity being attached to or resting on a cryptographic system that interoperates in exactly the same way as Bitcoin transactions do. And that would mean that the potential, uh, I mean, I guess you could add checks and balances, but the potential uh, maximum loss of of the identity DAC is actually detached from, well, what is it, the BitShares price, the, the, you know, the Bit, whatever the... In their case, it would be a separate token, so presumably a, the the price of key ID stake tokens. Yeah. Wow. So I guess that could float and people could say, you know what, there's not enough market cap here for us to because, cause, uh, like, here's a scenario. I've got a re- really keen interest in, you know, music, commerce, and distribution. I really feel like this is an area, and I'm not the only one. This is not a new idea either. Uh, this is an area where blockchain technology could be a, a great potential uh, f- uh, for musicians and for you know music appreciators, but the idea is, um, I, uh, you know, I want to um, say say I'm Sony, <laughs> uh, and I have Madonna's latest single. It's I own the copyright to to that. Um, I am selling that, and as well as everything else on their books, and they're um, identifying their uh, their claim to the to the right, the copyright of Madonna's latest single, which is itself. I don't know if Madonna's signed with Sony, but you know, whatever. So, uh, <laughs> so people know that that's Madonna's latest single, and when they want to buy it, they you know they might be buying it from iTunes or Google Play or whatever. But in this identity this identity system, and with a potentially peer to peer digital marketplace for media. You might be buying that single through a mechanism that isn't a um, sort of centralized and uh, blocked, uh, you know, like access blocked single resource like iTunes and Google Google Play Store where they say, hang on, who are you? Are you really Sony? Let's just verify that using the usual ways. And there's a curator there who makes sure that only the real Sony gets in to, to make this claim. In a decentralized system, you need to be able to ena- enable 
anyone to come and make a claim that they have the copyright to Madonna's latest single or whatever. But if but then when people come to buy it, that would be surfaced. That you'd see, you know, Johnny Five's uh, claim to be the copyright holder to Madonna's latest single and Sony's, and then you'll see the relative, uh, you know, weight of the of those. Um, you know, again, this would this would maybe a case where a simple linear um, reputation system would work, where you could say for that claim, for the claim to the right to the exclusive rights for copyright of a piece of music, this identity, let's say that that's the same identity as Sony has published on their HTTPS website, that identity has made that claim against um, this rights relationship and so has Johnny Five of, of uh, PirateBay.org. And so who are you going to take? Well, you'd be a total idiot to buy for a dollar that single from Johnny because, you know, it looks clear that it's the dodgy uh, one, and if you're going to pirate it, why pay a dollar? So, <laughs> yeah. So you'd be so your legitimate sales are going to go through the um, commonly identified identity. So that so bringing it back to the total damages. Well, if that didn't work, <laughs> well the <laughs> the amount that um, that Sony risks by saying, all right, yeah, we'll use BitShares, um, you know, BitID or whatever to uh for, as our identity the price or the market cap or whatever it is in the depos system that protects you know this is proof of stake right so sony's going to have to hold a lot of that stuff and maybe be a delegate uh, or at least to be voting uh, to ensure that the um uh, that the system won't fail to um prove represent their interests yeah to prove their ownership because if it doesn't work and then and then because that's what's supposed to stop people from getting the wrong idea and paying the wrong person, you know, that Johnny can't get any more than uh, the guy on the street selling rip-off CDs could get because everyone who's walking past that guy knows that they're, that they're straight off the back of the truck or they're all pirated or, or whatever. People know that those are pirated because they can see the signals. So in a digital version of the same thing, they would see the signals, that's legitimate Sony, this is illegitimate Johnny, and they make their own choice, decentralized. So, the whatever system ensures and um, yeah ensures against these failures uh, would have to be able to ensure a quantity that is at at risk. The other issue that we have with when we start looking at non currency uses for blockchains. Is uh, and that goes along with these, that goes along with these security models of uh, of mining delegates, what have you. Mm. Uh, but let's take mining as a classic example. Um, with Bitcoin, we generally see it as, and I, it's my view that this is incorrect. That we generally see that there is a potential monetary benefit from attacking the blockchain that can be achieved by attacking the blockchain, say via a fifty one percent attack, mm. and. Uh, and that can be reaped as a reward, and that is kind of the uh, that's the carrot that might motivate an attack. Mm. But but it's not you know it's not really saying. Well, I'm, I agree. For one, it's imp- I agree with that. It's impractical. Yeah, yeah, it's impractical. That, that's but, but that what, is extra protect, protection. Uh, what I guess what you what you're saying is there's no reason to fear that uh, because it's unlikely. But we could separate the no, the, the likelihood of that. Um, that failure case 
from the total impact of that theoretical failure case. And I agree with you. Even it's 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 even more protected than what what you're saying. Because while I agree with with what you're saying that um, that that actually extracting um, a monetary value from a 51% attack is uh, let's say overstated, you know, um, the the amount of um, benefit you could ever gain, even if you could do exactly what you wanted, even if you could take steal everyone's balances, which you can't do with a 51% attack, if you could steal everyone's balance in Bitcoin and cash 100% of that out into US dollars, you know, the still, even if you could do that, the maximum benefit would be for 5 billion, right? Across the board. You took Satoshi's, you took everyone's Bitcoin and you cashed it all out somehow. Now, that is obviously a theoretical maximum. There's no way you get anywhere near it because the minute you start doing that, it, it, you know, even the, even the best case is a total market crash and what you can pull out of that is, uh, is a very tiny fraction because once you start, once everyone recognizes that you're doing this, then the price crashes and you can't get much of it out anyway. The last person, to, the last of the $500 billion will never come out because who's going to sell it for one US dollar when you've, when you've stolen $4.9999 billion already? <laughs> it's not going to happen. So there's, there's many problems with that. However, mathematically, that what you, so what you're saying is that the upper bound of the, of the negative consequences is way lower than $5 billion, and I agree 100%, but it's certainly no higher. We know for sure without but, even looking at any detail that it can't possibly be any higher than that. See, I think that's where an error is being made, and it's more that the uh, as we try to quantify the security of these systems by looking at the uh, by gauging incentive versus expense of an attack. You know, I mean, that's a classic way yeah. of, of looking at uh, how these things are secured. We actually need to look beyond the. Uh, beyond the incentive structures that are built to secure the network and look to external motivations that may not be uh, considered by the protocol. Yeah. Uh, for example, as soon as you're dealing with identity, there's a whole bunch of you know, hidden incentives yeah. to damage, damage a system like that, especially from areas where people see this. Uh, I mean, we all see this kind of panopticon forming around us <laughs> and uh and you know and people people despise that and especially yeah. the idea of reducing a person to a number to a digital identity i think that i think that that's a really uh a really controversial uh thing to do yeah and i know that we actually had in new zealand a terror attack where they were digitizing the um the police records in the seventies, I believe, where a guy packed his mini, you know, so the story goes, full of explosives and and rammed uh, rammed the police facility where they were doing it. I mean, you know, where they were doing the digitizing. Of... Yeah. And so yeah. he was I mean, against it, and so he yeah. he thought exploding the stuff was the solution. Yeah, and uh, that was, I mean, of course, I mean, you know, what what other course of action would you do if you're a deranged? Um, yeah. <laughs> if you're, if you're a deranged farmer, but um, so yeah, I, look, uh, I I'm not with that guy. That's crazy. I'm not going to say I've got any common ground with some violent explosion oh. stuff. However, I think what we, what your point is, is, correct me if I'm wrong, is that people feel uh, real um, f 
fear and a resistance against the sort of 1984 Brave New World, uh, you know, everyone is reduced to a number and they're all in a database and they're, um, they've, you know, they've, they're all under the thumb, you know, they've, they've got a boot on their face. Exactly. Yeah, I'm and with I them, think- yeah, for sure. I t- completely agree. But what I'm saying is I think that this digital identity stuff is the way out of that because but i think culture the culture of our of our age mm. uh yeah it's kind of uh it's again it's that uh it's the perspective yeah um that you know it's it's about where you sit in the um and kind of the timeline and this hasn't, yeah. hasn't filtered down to a lot of to the, a lot of the world and they see this kind of thing as uh as the absolute nightmare scenario yeah you know yeah this isn't they don't fit into that mark zuckerberg Mark Zuckerberg just put on a brave face and let's plow on through. No, I, look, um, I'm with all those people. I think that this is that here's the way I see it: the tools of oppression are the same as the tools of liberation. They're the same tools. Okay, so actually, what you need to do here is level up. You need to become technically literate here, because the only possible outcome for not being so is like not being language literate or numerate or some other thing, not having an education to deal with the problems that you're seeing. Anyone can see that there is a potential danger from technology and from the control and uh, direction of technology and science and, you know, all of these things, engineering, progress, you know, the whole uh, direction of human capability in these technical specialities is a concern for everybody even people who don't have those specialities. But I think what I advocate is first literacy in or at least some familiarity with those concepts. So you, you can't um, protect against the, the techno apocalypse unless you at least know, you know, I want to stay away from that, that guy in the mini with the explosives. But, you know, you cannot, <laughs> you, you know, you can't, um, you can't uh, solve the problem through ignorance. That's the first step. And the second step is uh, the sort of identity systems and, you know, I guess now I really don't want to use that term identity system because it doesn't communicate the concept that, I'm, that I have in my mind. But name registration or, or alias registration or um, whatever you want to, you know, don't think like domain name registration, is that an oppressive tool? No, it's not. It enables you to create... But name spaces that where you can put stuff so that people know what it is and it doesn't get confused with other stuff that it's not. You know, this <laughs> yeah. is actually, you know, a way a, away from that because um, the problem isn't that uh, there is an identity system on Facebook or on Google. The problem is that Google and Facebook are not under our control. Our account isn't really under our control there. We don't choose what what information uh, is, um, is, go- is disclosed to whom. If we disclose it once to anyone, we probably in this modern world need to, unless we have specific cryptographic controls, we have to assume that that's public. And that's the way I approach my um, online life and have since I was online in 1991. I, I, you know, on fa- anything from me that goes onto Facebook, even though I haven't, befriended the world and I may have some kind of you know privacy settings in Facebook that stop people from seeing pictures of my kids or whatever anything that I put online in any form I consider to be public I've got two modes public and private 
private is not online or it's in some way highly cryptographically controlled, like, you know, the password manager and stuff like that, or it's public, you know. And that's the, I think that's the approach we need. People complain about Facebook destroying privacy. Well, there's nothing on Facebook that you didn't tell them about you. What you're doing when you're sharing your photos with, you, with your family on Facebook is you're also sharing them with Facebook. And then you're entrusting Facebook to do the right thing. And they just don't have the incentive to do that because you're not paying them to do that. Their customers are advertisers and you're the product. So you're going to rec- got to recognize that your uh, control of your private stuff or stuff that you don't want to be shared is something that, that you need to be um, tackling actively. And I think that we need a system to do that. And that system shouldn't be owned by single corporations. And that's the sort of system I've been describing. A couple of notes on the conversation. The Whanganui Computer Centre digitised and amalgamated the records of the New Zealand Police, Land Transport Safety Authority and the Justice Department. In 1982, the 22-year-old self-described punk anarchist Neil Roberts exploded a backpack of gel ignite at the gates to the facility. I shouldn't really have made fun of that. The BitShares distributed DNS and ID platforms have now been integrated into the BitShares platform itself. The DNS auction system was to be conducted in shares and pays a small portion of the proceeds to the next highest bidder. The rest is destroyed, distributing the value to the shareholders. Thanks again for listening. Content by myself and Chris Mountford. Music by Cesis. Mixing and mastering by Richard Toth. For the Let's Talk Bitcoin listeners, today's magic word is zombie. That's Z-O-M-B-I-E. Contact me at beyondbitcoinshow at gmail.com.